Welcome to The Dreaming. I'm Joe Fulgham. I'm Sasha Smulders. This is The Sandman, Issue 29, Thermidor. Starting off with the cover, which is uh, ink and acrylic. Mm -hmm. And I have a note on this, actually, from the Dust Covers book. In the printed cover, so the single uh, issue print, uh, they mean by this, for this, someone at DC replaced Dave's painted crescent moon with a flat green one. And to this day, no one knows why. Hmm. So you have the painted one. Yeah. And I can show you, I'll, I'll put this up on the show notes at thedreaming.modeofdust.com, but there is a version that just has the flat crescent circle. Why would someone do it's that? just a big yellow green crescent moon. Uh, they don't know. Hmm. So I'm imagining this must be uh, Orpheus's head. Yeah. He looks bald, but I think it's just because the hand behind him is just sort of holding all of his hair. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. It's a good one. Uh, what do you think the moon means? Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know. If anybody has an idea. I was thinking. If anybody has an idea, you can leave a note on our Patreon or on our Facebook page. Or you can email us at thedreaming at motivedust.com. Well, maybe like, because the crescent moon is like nearing the end of of a month, a lunar right? Month, anyway, yeah. Of a lunar cycle, mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Let's head to the inside. Okay. Neil has noted that Simon Shama's History of the French Revolution and John Paxton's Companion to the French Revolution were two of Neil Gaiman's major influences for the story. Additional help was also derived from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition, which is the 1890 printing. Oh. So he had access to some very old Encyclopedia Britannicas as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. And my summary for this is simply Lady Joanna Constantine does a favor for the Lord of Dreams during the French Revolution's terror. And that's what's going on here. There's the French Revolution going on around Lady Joanna Constantine as she does this mission for Morpheus. Mm -hmm. I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to be one who's going to be telling you all sorts of details about the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a lot of things here to talk about, and I have looked up the specific notes but I'm going to try not to make any claims about what was going on in the French Revolution because I don't know a ton of it. We talked a lot about it, the French Revolution during the Caustic Soda Robespierre episode. Mm -hmm. So if you'd like to hear about him, you can go to causticsodapodcast.com and check that out. That podcast is pretty much my only point of reference mm -hmm. for knowing much about uh, this period of time. Um, I... Like, uh, if you're a longtime listener, you'll know that I don't, uh, I, I read the issue right before we record, so I don't usually have any understanding of, of the time period or what's <laughs> going to be happening, so I didn't have a chance to sit down. I haven't brushed up on the French Revolution, and I will be forthcoming and letting y'all know, I don't know <laughs> nothing about it, so <laughs> this will be fun for me, too. Yeah. We begin in Witchcross, England with a shot of a house. A house. Call back to, oh. you know, the first issues. Oh, it's more, it's more than that, Sasha. Oh. Witchcross, England mm -hmm. is where that other house was. What? And in fact, this is that house. What? Now, it doesn't come across in this issue that well, but the Salmon Annotations does note that Neil noted that this is definitely Fawny Rig which mm -hmm. was Alex Burgess's house and Roderick Burgess's house. 
where Dream was eventually trapped in the basement. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Neil notes, it is the same house. More wings and bits were added in 1810 by Lady Joanna and in 1875 by the industrialist from whom Burgess later bought the house. But this is a fictional house. It is a fictional house, but okay. it's in a place where there are definitely a lot of beautiful houses like this. Yeah. And many bats. Neil has also said that the house was named by Lady Joanna after the manner in which she acquired it. Okay. Fawny Rig is a con where you pretend to pick up a fake gold ring that you claim somebody dropped. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, oh, this is super expensive. We could, I guess we could split it, but I don't have any money. Why don't you just give me, I don't know, $100 and you take this $1,000 ring and be happy with it. And then you make your money and you give them a, you know, a $2 ring. Yeah, yeah, because you use costume jewelry. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So she cons somebody out of this mansion wow. and it ended up becoming Roderick Burgess's after she was gone. Hmm. Well, somebody else in between, but eventually. Well, on this on this uh, full moon of a night, mm -hmm. um, uh, Dream appears in her study. Yeah. And he reminds her that we met in a tavern five years ago. That would be back in Sandman number 13. Mm -hmm. At the time, you believed me a demon. Have you learned differently since? Yes, I have. If if you are who I think you are... I am. Then what would you with me, sir? And he explains that there is a task he needs accomplished, one he cannot get directly involved in, and it's a family affair. We learn more about that later. We learn that it involves Orpheus, who is his son. Mm-hmm. But we don't know why he can't be involved himself yet. And uh, she wants to know what she's going to get out of this uh, mm -hmm. out of this deal. We know that, that the Sandman can't give her gold or property. I will give you what it is in my power to give you, Lady Joanna Constantine. And she accepts the quest. Because she knows who he is. So mm -hmm. I think that, again, the Constantines seem kind of wise in their bargaining. They don't try to push it too far, I think. At least she's doing that. Maybe maybe I don't know John Constantine that well. Maybe he's famous for pushing it. But mm -hmm. she totally gets, all right, cool. I know who you are. I trust that you're going to reward me well. Yeah. And if not, how am I possibly going to enforce it? You are the anthropomorphic personification of dreams. Plus, for a woman like her... Would she really want to hand over? So this is like a really big boon. Yeah. Like she knows she's going to get some kind of big boon out of him. Mm -hmm. Does she want to hand that kind of power to someone else? <laughs> yeah, that's another good one. Like yeah. if he's going to go find someone else to do this yeah. quest? All oh. sorts of reasons to do this and to not haggle. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. And so over the next page, we're in Paris, France. July 24th, 1794 of the revolutionary calendar, 6th Thermidor, year two. The French Republican calendar, also commonly called the French Revolutionary calendar, was a calendar created and implemented during the French Revolution and used by the French government for about 12 years from the late 1793 to 1805. It was designed in part to remove all religious and royalist influences from the calendar and was part of a larger attempt at decimalization in France, which also had included decimal time of day, decimalization of currency, and metrication. So they just said, during this revolution, we're going to change everything, including the months. So we looked up my birthday yeah. in the French Revolutionary calendar. Mm -hmm. And so my birthday, I haven't even pronounced this word, 28th of Ventos mm -hmm. in the year 197. Yeah, C-X-C-V-I-I. -I. So listeners, if you have figured out what my birthday is from that, 
It may or may not be coming up, and you can do some a mist or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. Whatever. We're not. It's all good. 28th of Ventos. Thermidor is the name of this issue as well. Mm-hmm. We've had three Septembers and a January already. And now we're getting a month in the middle of the summer with a right. interesting name. Mm-hmm. So we got these two guys hanging mm-hmm. out in the alleyway. Guards, it seems, yeah. Yeah, and they have matching red hats. Mm-hmm. Are those of importance in the French Revolution? It's known as the Bonnet Rouge, which means red hat mm-hmm. in France. It started to be used in 1675. The anti-tax and anti-nobility stamp paper revolt erupted, and it became known as the Bonnet's Rouge Uprising after the blue or red caps worn by the insurgents. Okay. Although the insurgents were not known to have preferred any particular style of cap, the name and color stuck as a symbol of revolt against the nobility and establishment. Wow. So when the revolution happened, they put these hats on again, and it became such a symbol of being on the side of the revolution that during the, the reign of terror, which is where we are now, even moderates would wear it just in hopes that people wouldn't think that they were revolutionaries. Huh. The caps were often knitted by women known as tricotus, who sat beside the guillotine during public executions in Paris and supposedly continued knitting in between the executions. Oh. Uh, there will be a mention of the tricotus later in this issue. The forerunner to the pink pussy hat. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. They're uh, scummy guards who stop her, and she cons her way through them. Yeah, she, uh, upon being pressed about uh, about what's in her bag, she pulls out a severed head. Yeah. And she tells them a story that this guy is an aristocrat who, uh, who assaulted her sister, mm-hmm. and that her sister... Uh, killed herself and that she's going to take this head and she's going to show it to her mother so her mother can spit on it. Right. It's a good story. It is great. And it feels like, even though Neil wrote this, it feels like she just made it up. Like she just, oh, I have to make up a story, blam. And then went into all these details and knew exactly how to do it and knew the face to give. Like, look at that look in her eye Mm -hmm. after she spits. Mm Yeah. Yeah. One of the guys is like, oh, just let her go, Guillaume, let her go. She's a mm-hmm. ghoul. And the other guy's like, wait, wait a second. And he comes up and he cuts the earring. He actually cuts the whole earlobe yeah. right off the head because mm-hmm. he wants that gold earring. And then wanders away singing, oh, ça ira. And ça ira is a popular song in during the revolution in France. It translates as... They will go, the aristocrats, to the lamppost. Hmm. Public lighting was a recent civic improvement and quite handy for dispatching unwanted nobility. The uh, Sandman Annotations notes. This is Edith Piaf. It translates to, ah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, aristocrats to the lamppost, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, the aristocrats will hang them. All right, everybody, learn this song and meet me behind the tool shed. (laughs) (laughs) So they let her go, and she heads back uh, to the place she is staying. Mm -hmm. And the head talks. Yeah, she takes him out and apologizes, cleans him up. Apparently, the earring will come back to him. Yeah, it will bring him nothing but misery. It has been stolen before now. Something's going on with this head, right? There's some kind of magic that keeps him alive and keeps his earring coming back? Yeah, he's a magic head. And uh, the two of them have a a really nice rapport, actually. 
Yeah, it's good. Mm -hmm. She corrects him and he (laughs) takes it, yes, with two hits. (laughs) There's also this really good shot here, the last panel of this page, Mm -hmm. um, where on one side you see her holding his head up Mm -hmm. and then there's like a mirror image but from the other direction. Right. And I just really like it a lot. It's a great shot. Yeah, it's great. And we must think fast, else we are both as good as lost. Aye, Master Orpheus. Well, they do say the two heads are better than one. (laughs) And then smash cut to her being caught and then searching her place. Yeah. And now this page is built really interestingly with a circular uh, image at the top. And then what almost like a, a... curving set of images that sort of remind me of uh like some those old board games right yeah yeah it feels like game of life yeah game game of life life, yeah and then the bottom panel and then just this like then just the figure out in front yeah i don't know it's a great page it doesn't look like anything that i usually like that sandman usually uses Mm -hmm. you know it's an interesting format she's basically getting threatened they they've captured her but they can't find the head so she's put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And she's pretending she doesn't know. He calls her citizeness bonne chance. They did call each other citizen and citizeness, that kind of like the same way that uh, Russians would call each other comrade during the revolution. I like that her pseudonym is like... Means good luck. Is good luck, yeah. Kind of, yeah. That's it, Well, it is an actual last name. I know it is, yeah. In, in France. Yeah, but uh, I just like that she chose one that kind of yeah. sounds is good luck as well. That's funny. And he calls her my little cabbage. Mon which is, petit it's a It's a little term of endearment in yeah. French, yeah. Mon petit chou. And says, the crowd will sing the caramagnole as your face tumbles into the basket. The caramagnole is another revolutionary song with an accompanying dance from the countryside. Uh, mm. Some of the lines include, translated, let's dance the caramagnole, hail to the sound, hail to the sound. Let's dance the caramagnole, hail to the sound of the gun. Ooh. Madame Beto, before Madame Beto, so he's about to punch her Mm -hmm. that's what this looks like when he is stopped Mm -hmm. louis antoine de saint-just was a military and political leader during the French Revolution. He was the youngest of the deputies elected to the National Convention in 1792 and rose quickly in the ranks and became a major leader of the government of the French First Republic. He spearheaded the movement to execute King Louis XVI and later drafted the radical French Constitution of 1793. Mm. He was uh, he was pretty bloodthirsty. I have two things to say about him. Mm-hmm. I have a wig that is pretty much identical to his hair. Mm-hmm. These images, same color, same cut. I look much better in it. The other thing I have to say is that he looks like a butt face. He, and he acts like one, two. His portrayal here doesn't seem that accurate. He no? seems pretty weasley faced. And the art that we've survived of him is that he was actually quite soft and young looking. Mm. He looks like the guy who, With, who played, um, uh, shit. Are you thinking Game of Thrones? No, I'm thinking, uh, Darth Vader's whiny nephew. Kylo Ren? Yeah. He kind of looks like Kylo Ren. Or grandson, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was an active member of the Committee of Public Safety, and he helped organize the terror. The Committee of Public Safety formed the de facto executive government in France during the reign of terror stage of the French Revolution, which would be 1793 to to 1794. 
basically they had this revolution and in that mm-hmm. time where you're like we've got rid of the monarchy now we're what are we going to set up they had a few different committees okay and when they finally got to this stage of the committee of public safety was when all these executions happened and this terror was going on in france and they were mostly just executing like the rich yeah it was it started off as the rich and mm-hmm. the aristocratic and those who were seen as enemies. But later on, because there were different factions within the revolutionary government, they started like accusing each other in these witch hunts and just death and executions all over. Mm, hence the whole reign of terror thing. Yeah. And that's why, the, like when I mentioned people would wear the uh, the red hats in the desperate hope that they wouldn't be seen as, you know, the, not on the right side of the revolution. That's how, <laughs> that's how bad it was. I like, I hear about the beginning stage of the French Revolution and I'm so gung-ho. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, tear it down for the people. And then we hear about this end stage and I'm like, ooh, I'm uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people should remember it was a pretty secular reign of terror. Yeah. Like they were trying to get rid of religion and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And... Man, anybody can be the bad guy. Anybody. Yeah, it turns out violent extremism is uh, just generally a human condition. It's humans, yeah. yeah. Well, we might find some aliens who are the same, but so far, yeah, humans. So far, it seems to be a human condition. <laughs> yeah, good job, humans. And St. Just saves her from the beating. Yeah. And you can actually see him threaten the guard with a debate with the Committee for Public Safety. He's basically threatening him... To be put up in front of a fake trial and then executed. That's actually one of the things I do remember from high school history class was that the name, the Committee for Public Safety, was kind of ironic. Yeah. Like that is stuck in my head. It's one of the few things I do remember from high school history classes. St. Just is taking them to the Luxembourg, which is uh, the Palace of Luxembourg, not the the, uh, country of Luxembourg. Oh, yeah, it's in Paris, and it's named after a European royal family, and I believe so is the country. Hmm. Maybe I'll try to go there this summer. <laughs> and so we find out in their conversation in the carriage mm-hmm. that she slept with him Yeah. at one point, mm-hmm. and presumably that is how she managed to uh, maybe get the head in the first place. Yeah, probably. There's a whole story here of how she got the head that's missing and this is just the escape now. And she says to him, you could let me go. Just tell the driver to turn his head and you would never have to see me again. And this is where he mentions the tricotous knitting beneath the guillotine. He claims to be a realist who believes in nothing, but Monsieur Robespierre, who is the uh, basically the dictator of the time right mm-hmm. now, the head of that committee that we're talking about, He believes, he truly believes, and if I betrayed him, mm, then St. Just would lose his head over a woman. So, uh, no, I can't let you go because if if I give them any excuse at all, they'll cut my head off too. Yeah, it was just really fashionable to cut people's heads off at that time. Yes, it very much was. Yeah. And as you can see, the Palace of Luxembourg is being used to house several political prisoners, including Thomas Paine. I just want to... Before we move on to Thomas Paine, I want mm. to point out that when we get this faraway shot, we still see that they have this conversation. And throughout it, Joanna Constantine is still like 
joking with him. Yeah. You know, she like, she doesn't drop it. She never begs. She never does anything. Like, she doesn't even seem to get that. She's sort of doing that thing that like male action heroes usually get to do. Right. In stories where they keep their cool mm-hmm. the whole time and they, you know, make jokes and have one-liners the whole way through. And yep. she maintains that throughout. Yeah, and she seduced somebody in order to get there. Yeah. Like, this is basically a James Bond episode with gender reversal going on. Yes, set it is. during the French Revolution. Absolutely, plus <laughs> magic dreams. Constantine. Joanna Constantine. This is the film series that I need. To have. <laughs> sure. I need this to exist. Yeah. Hollywood. Well, maybe some of the DC shows that are going to have Constantine on will have some cool uh, let's look back in the past <gasps> at what happened with Joanna Constantine. And now in the present, we're dealing with a thing that she found. Wouldn't that be like no time travel, right? But just uh, have one of those two stories being told concurrently and her story informs the modern day story. Wouldn't that be fun? Screenwriters, pay attention to this. This is important. I just, want uh, this. <laughs> Who would you cast as uh, Joanna Constantine, by the oh. way? I think she looks a little bit like Daryl Hannah. Yeah. But I can't imagine Daryl Hannah playing her. No, maybe, so. I can't. There are lots of people who could play Joanna Constantine, actually. I think that's the interesting thing about her. Because mm. blonde hair, you don't have to be naturally blonde. No. So, um, uh, Tandy Newton. There we go. <laughs> I don't know who that is. The proprietor of the whorehouse on Westworld. Ooh. Who ended up uh, going rogue. Sure. Just, you know, going for more diverse casting. Sure. Yeah, I, there's all sorts of women who could do this kind of tough role. We've got some who've established themselves uh, who I think might be past the age where it would really work. I, I don't know. I okay. would, I, a new actress. That's what I would do. I'd find sure. a new talent. Excellent. And so in the hallway, they pass Mr. Payne. Thomas Paine was an Englishman whose influential pamphlet, Common Sense, lent strength to the American Revolution. He also wrote uh, Rights of Man and several other things, which were very influential among these revolutionaries and people trying to overthrow monarchies. While he was in England, he was threatened by intrigue and he fled to France, where he had just been elected as a representative from Calais. And then he was actually involved in the process of the revolution as well as being on the American staff drafting texts on freedom. But he was a thorn in Robespierre's side because he actually believed in liberty and democracy. And so when they perceived foreign plots against them, he was caught up in it as a scapegoat and they imprisoned him. Okay, so this dude basically was just running around all over the place, helping all the revolutions happen. Yes. Cool. Thomas Paine. Yeah, you should read some of Common Sense. It's Uh, I haven't read it in its entirety myself, but it's basically laying out, look, here's why we have governments and here's why the monarchy is not a problem and here's what America should do. And it's just a very well-reasoned article on why we should rise up against this monarchy and become an independent nation. And Common Sense was probably, and I think is still, the number one best-selling book of all time in America. Because, and at its time, it was so popular that I think it would be almost impossible today for something to reach the same penetration that it did. Like pretty much every person in America either read the pamphlet or had had it read to them by somebody else. Certainly everybody involved in the revolution had read it. Yeah. Huh. And so here he is, this writer, this person who has done nothing but work for liberty, and he's in prison as well. 
Yeah, so he came to France, was like, yeah, revolution, let me mm-hmm. teach you all about what I know about it. And then they were like, yeah, but actually, we want to be corrupt. And so they threw him in prison because he didn't want to be corrupt. Yeah, good news, he did get out. Oh, good. Yeah, he did survive, they, even though right here he's being uh, he's being taunted that he will only be, uh, the only walk from here is when you begin the journey that permits no returning. He's talking about execution. And at the bottom, Saint-Just actually quotes from Common Sense. I'm, parts of that, I'm sure most people would recognize, even though they haven't read Common Sense. Mm. These are the times that try men's souls, and mm-hmm. what we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly, are things that I've certainly heard many mm-hmm. times before. And here, Saint-Just is using it as a reason that he should be allowed to just start chopping heads off of all of his enemies. Yeah, he's perverting. Yes. Uh, the the original meaning behind it which you can do with words mm-hmm. well when he is toppled as all tyrants must topple you will fall with him saint just and that is a comfort to me and uh pain recognizes uh, want... our ms constantine <laughs> that's right have we met before in america perhaps or in england <laughs> i get around monsieur you know how it is <laughs> again a totally bond response right right Yes. And you, sir, have we met before? No. Could be, (laughs) madame. I get around. (laughs) I don't know if there was a time when Thomas Paine was supposed to have been guillotined, but somebody erased the mark in his door. His claim that he will not live to see the end of Thermidor is incorrect. It's actually St. Just, as we see. Yes. It uh, does not survive. Yes. And so she gets locked away in her room. Mm Mm-hmm. And we switch over to the journals of Lady Joanna Constantine, Volume 6, May 1793 to January 1794, from the British Library Sealed Shelves. And I find this to be pretty hard to read. I I get that it's very accurate. It looks to be uh, hand done by, uh, I'm guessing, Todd Klein, our letterer. Yeah, it looks realistic, but it's definitely hard to read, especially, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like, I'm pretty out of uh, practice with handwriting. Cursive, yeah. Like with cursive. I mean, I can read all of it. That's fine. But it takes me a minute to remember what some of the letters are. Right. You kind um, of have to slog through it. I Yeah, I agree. And then also at times it gets really bold. Mm-hmm. And that's also hard to read is the inconsistency of the thickness I'm of the lettering. I'm pretty sure that is the sign of it actually being done with a fountain pen. Mm-hmm. So the bold is where you've just loaded up the ink and mm-hmm. you write... And then it goes out, and so you put more ink on, and it gets bold again, and then yeah. it writes and goes out. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that this was actually hand-lettered with a fountain pen, mm-hmm. but it, and which is great artistically, but the ease of reading is quite low. Can you sum up what she says in here? Uh, this was, I found myself immured in the Palace of Luxembourg. My plight was not cheerful, and in my younger days, I might perhaps have dropped a few tears in the tumult of my senses. But I had been hardened by the years and was content to wait. It is forever a matter of amazement to me what trifling consolations the mind will seize upon in times of misery. Myself, I sought refuge at this extremity in tabulating what I had so far accomplished. I had crossed the channel without incident, and I had, with ease, made the acquaintance of Louis Saint-Just. The Salmon Annotations notes that the way it's written here on the next page with the J and the line at the end was a style of the period. And was also kind of done to kind of hide who you were talking about Mm. so that they couldn't get in trouble, I guess. Mm. Not that she's doing that here, but I think she's just continuing with that style. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows who who she means. Mm -hmm. 
As I have remarked earlier in these journals, those who consider themselves the stronger sex are, in many matters, more tractable than children when their passions are to be gratified. In short, men have a fund of gullibility, and, as my readers must by now have gathered, one I have never shrunk from exploiting when it met my purpose. St. Just impudently told me the whereabouts of my quarry, little realizing to whom he spoke. Thus, it was not long before I had betaken myself to the crypt and gained myself of what I sought. Where there is life, there also is hope, they say. But my death waited for me then, in the Place de la Revolution, at the edge of the weighted blade, and at that time, and in that place, I could foresee no way to avoid it. We see a marionette show using the beheaded bodies of people. <laughs> That's really disturbing. I tried to find out if this was actually true. There are claims that this occurred, mm -hmm. and there was a French performance put on later on that kind of hinted at this, mm. but made but with actually uh, large puppets, I believe. Okay. But I can't find any confirmation that this ever actually happened. So it probably didn't. Well, okay. I, I find claims that it happened mm. and, and like old claims. So I, I can't confirm or deny. It mm. might have happened, but I, I can't say for sure that it did. Okay. And in comes Robespierre. Yeah. He's a, he's not a very tall guy. Mm -hmm. He likes to wear green. He looks a little bit like the wizard to me from The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. And he knows, uh, he knows all about Our Lady Constantine. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows who her parents are. He knows about her twin sister who died. Mm -hmm. um, he knows uh, she was never married. The Sandman Annotations notes that all, quote, true Constantines are the product of a twin birth where the twin dies. Oh. So uh, John Constantine, that's true of him. And actually, in one story, they reveal that he strangled his twin brother in utero with his own umbilical cord. That's awful. Yes. It's mm. terrible. And there's there's an alternate universe where he survived and grew up to be the uh, friendly, beloved, uh, well-balanced magician. Uh, okay. That John Constantine never was. Huh. Yeah. Her true father may have been Sir Francis Dashwood. Of the so-called Mendmanham monks, Sir Francis Dashwood lived from 1708 to 1781 and is known as the founder of one of the most notorious historical Hellfire Clubs. Hmm. Although it actually wasn't called the Hellfire Club at the time, they had a few names, but for most of the time they met at the Medmanham Abbey, and so they became known as the Medmanham Monks. There are claims that it featured clerically-themed orgies in which the attendees were dressed as priests and nuns. Uh, Dashwood is definitely a Satanist. They definitely did do a lot of uh, mocking rituals there. There's also a rumor that Benjamin Franklin was a guest at one of their ceremonies when he was over visiting England. So sus it's suspected that her actual father was the a... founder of the of the quote Hell Hellfire Club. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. Okay, that makes me very happy. You speak perfect French, but then you are the protege of the so-called Chevalier d'Eon, exile spy and enemy of France. And he or she has taught you well. Charles Genevieve Louis Auguste André Timothy Dion de Beaumont, le Chevalier de Aon, lived from 1728 to 1810. Dion masqueraded as a lady in waiting under the name Leah de Beaumont at the court of the Tsarina in 1755, but was in reality a French spy. The Chevalier was a distinguished soldier and diplomat, including ambassador to England, and they lived. The first 49 years of their life as a man, 
Then went off and did this stuff uh, in Russia where they were a spy posing as a woman the entire time. Mm -hmm. And then for the last 33 years of their life, they lived as a woman back in France. Chevalier d'Eon was a spy for the king, the king's secret, not even beholden to the government at the time. And so was going off and doing all these political things for the king. So, of course, during this revolution that knocks the king out, he becomes or they become uh, an enemy of the revolution. Doctors who examined Dion's body after death discovered male organs in every respect perfectly formed, but also described other feminine characteristics, including rounded joints and fully formed breasts. Okay. Well, there there are... um, There's a condition. It's called... It starts with the G. Gynomastica. Gynomastica, where... Mm -hmm. Um, rounded limbs but also maybe this person was intersex oh absolutely Uh, that's what people think they well they're not sure or they could have been transgender and actually for a while aonism Mm e-o-n-i-s-m was used to describe similar cases of transgender behavior but it's not used anymore okay well that's cool He's a very interesting character. I'll put a link up in the show notes to the Wikipedia page. It's got some more stuff, goes into more detail. I'm not even explaining it all that well. There's a really great image of him fencing. Cool. And we find out about some of uh, her past missions or quests. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice fill-in to show us that she's really good at what she does. Yeah, she positively identified as the young English captain involved in the theft of certain papers from the Russian Imperial Court in 1786, (laughs) which was 10 years ago. So she would have been in her early 20s. And then she was certainly involved in the slave scandal in Louisiana three years ago. And also she was in Egypt and she was narrowly escaped being strangled as a witch. Mm-hmm. Mm. You are now in possession of something that belongs to the people of France, an object of superstition and decadence. I want it back, Mademoiselle Constantine. Good day, Citizen Robespierre. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and we find out that they did find out the head was missing and then soldiers did mention that a woman had a head and they found her. Yeah, they put two and two together and they mm-hmm. found her. They want to destroy it. We are remaking the world, woman. We are creating an age of pure reason. We've taken the names of dead gods and kings from the days of the week and the months of the year. We have lost the saints and burnt the churches. I myself have inaugurated a new religion based on reason, celebrating an egalitarian supreme being, distant and uninvolved. Don't you understand? So getting rid of Orpheus's head is part of getting rid of religion and superstition and magic that he thinks are the old time and he wants the sciencey stuff. So this means that at some point in the past, mm-hmm. they, someone in the French, um, like, aristocracy or whatever mm-hmm. ended up with Orpheus's head? Yeah, for some reason it was in a crypt in France. We don't know the story of how it got there. Hmm. But they know it's there. They know it's like, like magic it seems that way yeah yeah it could be that they don't know that it talks just know that it claims to talk but then how could it would would it be that old and still be ahead no they i i they must know that's the odd thing about mysticism and superstition in a world where there's literally magic Mm -hmm. doesn't the skepticism starts to really fail yeah Yeah. this is kind of reminding me a little bit about of like raiders of the lost ark 
Mm-hmm. But twisted, right? Because like in that one, the Nazis want to find magical and mystical items so it'll make them more powerful <laughs> yeah. instead of being like, we have to destroy these so that we can ensure our atheist future, like our reasonable atheist future. We have to destroy all these things yeah. <laughs> instead. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm an atheist and here I am loving the Sandman, mm-hmm. which is a completely not real. It's almost as if you can have a complicated view of the world. I can differentiate between fact and fiction. Shocking. (sighs) She will only be given food and water if she changes her mind. So they're going to starve her out. Yeah, she's got to find that head or else she's going to die. So she dreams to ask for some help. I'm pretty amazed that she's able to sleep (laughs) in this situation. She's a pro. Yeah, I know. I'm just impressed. I'm impressed by her. Yeah, yeah, she's great. There's a waterfall of blood, a bloodfall. A bloodfall. And Morpheus has his raven. Mm-hmm. But we find out the raven's name is Jessamy. Yeah. And Jessamy actually has an idea. Yeah, because uh, Morpheus won't directly help her. Mm-hmm. He's, and he, he can't. He that again. He can't. Like, I don't think he doesn't want to. And so the raven's idea is that Orpheus has, uh, has a couple, knows a couple tunes. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that might be useful. It's true. I haven't talked much about Orpheus yet. No. I'll do that as we go along to reveal mostly what's revealed here. Because, I mean, spoiler alert, you know this is going to happen now that we've learned that this is his son. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear more about Orpheus. And when we do, I'll fill in a lot more details. Mm. Might even be in only a few issues. So she, she drinks a cup of the Blutterfall. Yep. So that she'll remember her dream. Mm-hmm. And then Morpheus tells her some things she needs to remember. But no, we don't get to hear them. Because the next thing we know, we it's... find out that she's being taken to a tower. Robespierre had a dream. Mm-hmm. He looks so pleased with himself. <laughs> he is. Well, he's very, the way he's explaining it, it is kind of a smart guess that came to him in his dream. Where do you hide a book in a library? Where do you hide a flower in a garden? Where do you hide a severed head? Where do you hide a severed head? You tell me, Citizen Robespierre. You tell me. You hide a severed head amongst other severed heads. Hide it with the corpses that have not yet made their journey to the lime pits. Now, mademoiselle, I have answered your question. Please enter. I have a favor to ask of you. Will you do me the courtesy of introducing me to your friend? I have a question about this. Yes. If all these heads are just going to go to the lime pits anyway... Mm -hmm. Why does he need her to find him the particular head if they're just going to destroy them? Why not just destroy all these severed heads? I think, well, he needs to know for sure that it's destroyed. But how will he know that that's the head? I don't know. She could then just choose, all they've done is brought her to a pile of severed heads of which she can take her pick. I must guess that he will be able to identify the head positively. But then why would he need her to find it? But I mean, once she pulls it, yeah, it might be, he might be able to, right? But it would okay. just be easier if she knows what it looks like and goes and gets it. Okay. Because she me, put it somewhere, just, right? It's just like a little convoluted. Like, I get what they want to do. I understand. She doesn't want to pick up every single head in this room and go, is that it? No. Is that it? No. She put it there. So he's like, show me where it is. Okay. It's just, yeah. It's a little, hmm. Yeah. Saint Just makes a mistake. He, uh, he says, phew, what a stink. Meat does not keep well in this July heat. Thermidor. I mean Thermidor. He holds up a pomodor, which is a ball basically containing perfumes and scents. Mm. This was before uh, regular bathing was a habit amongst the populace. 
Mm. So people generally wouldn't change their clothes and underwear all that often and walked around smelling pretty bad. So you'd carry these things to ward off that stench. Like a little ball of potpourri. Mm-hmm. And she gives him one last chance. Yeah. Monsieur Robespierre, even now it is not too late. You can let me go. I will take what I came for and leave France and never bother you again. Remember this, that I offered you one final chance to let the matter lie. Mademoiselle, your attempts to threaten me are laughable and pathetic. Pathetic? Give me the head. I got to look that word up. Pathetic. Producing an unintentional effect of anticlimax. Mm. Cool. It's an anticlimax. This is not a climax. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a misprinting, but no, pathetic. It's a real word. There you go. Let's bring pathetic back. The more you learn. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. well, citizen. This is the head of Orpheus, ripped from his living body by the Picante. They used their bare hands, the women of the frenzy. The Bacante were worshippers of Bacchus, the god mm. Bacchus. They threw his head into the Hebrus, and it is said that it still called the name of his lost love as it floated down to the sea. The Hebrus is a river? Mm-hmm. This is the head of Orpheus, who bested death and who now cannot die. Also true, in the myth of Orpheus, his head was thrown into the Hebrus. It mm. is a, that's a Greek river. It's now called the Maritza. And she puts the head on top of a pile of heads mm-hmm. and then covers her ears. Now, Monsieur Orpheus, sing to them. And he does sing. Yeah. He sings in Greek, and she doesn't understand all of it because right. she doesn't really understand Greek. My ears were covered, but I could not entirely obliterate the sounds the head made as it began its song. Although I possess a modicum of Greek, the most part of the words it used were unfamiliar to me. Still, by what means or mechanism I cannot say, I found myself deriving some measure of sense from its chanting. The head sang first of blood, of the baying, senseless cries of the mob, of the anger of women and men, of the worm that devours its own flesh. Mm. Then it sang of freedom of liberty, of love. And as it sang, I gazed in dumbfoundment, for other voices were also raised in jagged unison. Discordant voices, harsh voices, the voices of the dead. And my friend, for so now I bethought him, no longer sang alone. The ghastly chorus sang of those who lead, of those who by virtue or circumstance are raised above the crowd, who manipulate the commonality. Will they or nil they, as a puppet master tugs on the strings of a marionette, Mm. or a Romani traveler pulls the leash of his dancing bear, it sang of a dream, and of the ending of the dream. And it stuns them. The song stuns Robespierre and Saint-Just. I am not able to conceive what it must have been like to hear that song unprotected. Monsieur Saint-Just and Monsieur Rosier and their manservant stood and listened like statues, like men entranced. After what seemed an age, the song ceased, and still they stood there. And taking what I had come for, I left that place. (laughs) Like a badass spy, she knocks somebody out, takes their uniform, and... uh... Rides out of the town. 
the next page over basically signifies that this is the turning point for the revolution, especially for Robespierre and Saint-Just, who mm-hmm. Saint-Just, the great orator, falters during his speech. In truth, he was interrupted after saying a few words, mm. and he fell silent under a torrent of verbal lashing. In the subsequent uproar, the anti-Robespierre conspirators made their move. The committee ordered the arraignment of Robespierre, Saint-Just, and Couthon, the arrest of Dumas, president of the Revolutionary Tribunal, and the removal of Henriot from command of the National Guard. The five were later released, only to be declared outlaws, their lives forfeit. Before dawn the next day, the guardsmen came to take them again. Saint-Just yielded without resistance, but Robespierre either attempted suicide or was shot in the jaw by a soldier who later boasted of shooting the tyrant. The shattered jaw was papered, for there was no linen to staunch the wound. A surgeon later bandaged it and extracted two or three loose teeth. The bandage was indeed, as this page shows, torn from his mouth just before his death under the guillotine. Oof. So I guess what we're supposed to see, or what Neil is trying to tell us in this one, in his version, they're kind of cursed by that song? He ended their dream. Yeah. They had a dream of this France. And he's the Lord of Dreams. This song, through his son, ended their dream. Mm. Probably a good thing. Yeah. Because his dream was called the Terror. Yeah. And here we are, September 9th, 1794, on the Isle of Naxos, which is actually a Greek island, one of the Cyclades. It uh, lies between Greece and Turkey. And she is returning Orpheus to the monks who look after him. Mm Mm-hmm. Or the priests who look after him. Yeah. It will be good to rest once more. And my mother still comes by from time to time. You know who that is? Yeah, well... Calliope. Um, yeah, and uh, she eventually gets freed. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's imprisoned yet. It's 1794. She won't be imprisoned for another 100 years or so. Oh. Pretty girl. sure that's when a little, hundred, a little more than 100 years, I think. Hmm. So she will still come by and visit Orpheus. So Calliope is his mother. Mm-hmm. Morpheus is his father. This next bit's sad. Orpheus asks Joanna if if his father, Morpheus, actually cares for him. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that especially pre-imprisonment, Morpheus is pretty cold. Right? And he never visits his son. No. Even when he got his head chopped off. Not even in dreams. Mm-hmm. Deadbeat dad, Sandy. <laughs> Deadbeat dad. Yeah, maybe we'll get the story of that sometime. Yeah. I never saw him more. But as the years have passed, I have on occasion seen him in my dreams. And from that time on, The song of Orpheus has always hovered at the edge of my perception. A melody I can never truly recapture, try howsoever I will. And do not doubt that there are many in authority to whom I would sing it, if it were within my power. Hmm. Yeah, it was a good song. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The song that stuns fascists, we need that song again, please. It's called Punk Rock. (laughs) Oh, if only. If only. (laughs) There we go. Thermidor. I said it kind of at the start. Probably not one of my favorites. I still really enjoy it. It's got lots of great stuff in it. Yeah. Like, I guess my impression is like, while I was reading it, I was like, oh, there's so much to read. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and now that I and and then also not like having that now that I we've talked through it, mm-hmm. I really liked it. Oh, good. Yeah, well, just getting to know who all the players were. Like when I was reading it, I was kind of like, I think I know who these people are, mm-hmm. but I've got a way better understanding of it. And like, yeah. at what point of the French Revolution it was in, just mm-hmm. going over this, like, really, I don't think. At any point in this series, has talking about an issue made me like it so much more. Oh, okay. But now yeah. I do, especially knowing like, and then the references to her, who she was the protege of, and me finding out there's this like potentially like transgender super spy. Yeah. Yeah. Like awesome. Because at first I was just like, oh, cool, this person's their like drag daddy or drag mommy. <laughs> like who is a person who, if you if you aren't in the drag scene, teaches you. Uh, like it's a, a person who is a drag performer who takes on a a new drag performer and like teaches them stuff like helps them with their makeup helps them with everything else you know that's your your drag mom or your drag dad (laughs) and i was like oh that's cool but now that i know that it's so much more awesome like wow yeah so yeah having known all that information it has improved this issue for me a whole lot and i really like it oh that's good Mm-hmm. I, I did enjoy it more now that I've done my own research into the uh, the French Revolution and who these people are and what a lot of this means. Yeah. And hopefully for all the listeners, they too will enjoy it more. Yeah. So up next is actually the Sandman issue 38. Mm-hmm. It's another standalone story. Ooh. And it's called The Hunt. It does not feature characters we've seen before. Okay. So you're not going to have a whole bunch to go on. And we've decided, because these are kind of difficult because it's not part of a story, we're going to have you look at the cover for the next issue to give yourself some hints. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the cover, Mm -hmm. and I'm getting a lot of like mysticism stuff from this. Mm -hmm. Um, They're covering one eye, covering one mouth, and they've got an image stuck to their forehead. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that this issue is about a shape changer. Okay. And yeah. what what goes on? I mean, I guess a hunt goes on? Yeah, I think maybe like a werewolf hunt or something. Maybe there's some kind of like shape changer werewolf and people are hunting them, but mm. maybe they're not actually evil. Okay. And so maybe Morpheus is involved with like helping that creature survive or okay. something. Mm. Like not that. exactly Morpheus's MO. Well, maybe. But he does Morpheus get involved sometimes. Owes the creature something or the other way around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I lo- I love all of these uh, ideas, and we're going to have to find out how accurate you are next episode. Mm. You've been dreaming of the Sandman, number 29, Thermidor. For show notes, visit thedreaming.motivedust.com. Support future episodes at patreon.com slash thedreaming, and we'd sure appreciate it if you tell your friends about us. Our theme music is Onerai by Kai Engel. Hear more at kaiengel.bandcamp.com. The Dreaming was recorded in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Kikate, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm Joe Fulgham with a cold. Thanks for listening. Time to wake up. <laughs>